This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, July 25th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. The New Deal, that bundle of programs rolled out during Franklin Delano Roosevelt's administration, represented a stunning assault on the rights of millions of Americans. And there's never been a proper reckoning of the large-scale violations of constitutional rights. Historian David Beto is author of the new book, The New Deal's War on the Bill of Rights, The Untold Story of FDR's Concentration Camps, Censorship, and Mass Surveillance. We spoke earlier this month in Memphis. I guess it's worth understanding a little bit of the environment in which Franklin Delano Roosevelt took office. You know, we're in a, a deep economic recession at the time for at least a couple of years. And what was, I guess, what was FDR's program coming into office? If you look at FDR's campaign, he sent mixed messages. He was actually attacking the Hoover administration as a spendthrift administration, called for 25% budget cuts. And he, there's actually on audio some of those speeches from 1932. It sound, he almost sounds like Ronald Reagan at times. But then once he takes office, there's no more mixed messages, and FDR is pushing a very expansive welfare and regulatory state with perhaps an early emphasis on the regulatory state with the Agricultural Adjustment Administration, which imposed controls over crops and prices, and then the National Recovery Administration, which controlled wage controls, price controls, very coercive. And then later, you know, as you get to 1935 or so, we start getting the welfare aspects of the New Deal to a much greater extent, such as Social Security. But initially, he's doing a lot of regulatory stuff, but also, a, you know, a fair amount of house subsidies for in areas such as housing and public works, that kind of. And, and what was the congressional understanding, if there if there was such a thing, of what rights were due to Americans and under what circumstances they could easily be abridged? Well, initially, there's very much a emergency mentality, which is, this is our president. We're going to give him whatever he wants. We're going to trust him. But within a few months, people start raising questions. So it didn't take terribly long. I'd say three months or so a lot of people are saying, wait a minute, this could lead to dictatorship. This is going contrary to American traditions. And FDR was starting to make more and more evident that he this wasn't temporary for him. Some people said, had the view that, well, this is a temporary thing, like on COVID, right? All we need is do this stuff to flatten the curve. Well, Roosevelt sort of had that message initially. But then within a few months, it became clear. He says, I want these to be permanent changes to the American economy and prosperity or, you know, or, or depression. I want it to be the same. And he, he initially has a lot of support because of that emergency mentality he has good, good, you know, majorities. But in 1934 and 35, he's getting pushback. And at that point, he's getting a little bit more hostile towards the political opposition started starting to be a lot more fearful of them and become supportive of opening up investigations of the political opposition and discrediting the political opposition. That wasn't so much a concern early on because he had all this backing, but it starts to splinter 
and FDR really becomes, and he's starting to fall in the polls. A lot of people forget that, that as late as July 1936, when he wins this record landslide, he is shown as losing in the polls for re-election. So there's more opposition there, and he's worried about it. He wants to discredit them. He wants to investigate them, a little like the mentality that you've seen in the last 20 years with various administrations. Now, I don't know exactly where I saw this quote, but it's from A.B. Happy Chandler on what you as Americans owe to the state. And if I recall correctly, the quote was something like, you owe whatever we want, whatever the state desires from you, you must give it up. Mm-hmm. And and I don't I don't know I don't know when when this would this quote emerge, but it just seems like such a such a striking sentiment to to express about what what the state is owed by average people. Was was there a a broad view at least within the Roosevelt administration that 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 what they were doing the program that they were engaged on it simply had to carry the day no matter what. Yeah, I think there's that mentality. Roosevelt is a very effective wordsmith. And I think those are things that he did believe. And sometimes he, especially in private meetings, he would say things like that. He, there was a, a famous radio commentator, kind of a combination Rush Limbaugh and Glenn Beck named Boat Carter. And in private, Roosevelt said, we got to find a way to shut this guy down. We got to get him off the air. In public, he was a lot more careful in shrouding it in language such as democracy and so forth. But I think that there was that mentality that we, um, you know, this is the horse and buggy days. These people have made a fetish out of individual rights. And why are they so paranoid? And it's no big deal. And really, they're all with vested interests anyway. This is what a lot of new dealers would say. Well, we hear about all this stuff in investigations about the rights of privacy, but when we hear that, it's almost always from the rich man trying to protect his ill-gotten gains. So there is that mentality early on, you know, in in the in the nineteen thirties during this New Deal period, that that's that's there. That we've got priorities and this stuff, it's all, you're all, it's a cynical, you're, you don't really believe these ideas because you don't believe them for ordinary people. And it's just, you want to protect your wealth. That's all you want to do. So with all of that as a backdrop, what were some of the most striking attacks on the rights of basic Americans? Or or let me back that up. With all that as the backdrop, then what were some of the most striking attacks on the rights of average Americans that we saw out of the Roosevelt administration. Okay, well, you can go forward to the Japanese internment, which I'd be happy to talk about, which is the most obvious one that most people know about and sort of make excuses for in a way, but we can talk about that. The early one that they don't know as much about, that this book, I think, trods new ground, is the Black Committee, named after Senator Hugo L. Black of Alabama, who later became a Supreme Court justice. And Roosevelt, the people administration, wanted to investigate opponents in the New Deal. And they set this up, and they went to Black, who was regarded as the most loyal attack dog for the New Deal. And they said, we want you to investigate opposition to the New Deal. 
couched it initially as opposition to lobbying, but but or, or a certain kind of lobbying, and they couched that in very broad terms. So if you did anything to influence policy, you were you were considered taking part in lobbying, and you should be investigated. And of course, they only wanted to investigate the people that were opposed to the New Deal. So Black starts calling in witnesses. He has some limited success, but then he gets an idea, and he goes to the FCC, and the president, of course, agrees to this as well, and he goes to the IRS. He says, I want access to the telegrams that have been sent by people who I'm investigating in incoming and outgoing. And of course, this is the email of its time, right? Telegrams, you get instantaneous communication. And it's more important, they're more important than telephone, long distance telephones anyway, in the early 30s. Well, telegrams are, are more important part of the, the market. And so it goes to the FCC and they the telegram com- companies such as Western Union had a, had a, they kept copies of all their telegrams, right? And uh, as a matter of policy. So basically the FCC said, okay, you can search those telegrams and you don't even need a subpoena of the individuals. It was like a, they called it a dragnet subpoena. So they said, look, we want to, for example, this is one thing they did. We want to search all incoming and outgoing telegrams of all members of Congress. And then they would expand the list to include other people. And they went to Western Union, where most of these telephones came from. Then they went to the other companies too. They said, we want to search all your telegrams for these people from for a whole year, like 19, I think it was 35 into 36. We want to get access to to these. We got these names. We want to go in there. We want to look at these. And Western Union, you know, was reluctant to do this, and they they didn't want to do it. They'd fought this. This happened before, you know, not in this level. But they gave in, right, so, under protest, basically. So Senator Black goes in there with his staff. He goes in there with other people from the FCC. And they go to Western Union and they get these big stacks of telegrams. So this is like reading your private communications, incoming and outgoing, and they go through them. And I forget the number, it's, it's, I think it's 3 million that they went through. Now what they did is, okay, the guy gave instructions. The guy was supervising this for Black. He said, look, look just for evidence of lobbying. Of course, that could include anything, right? Like you have someone over for dinner, right? who was a senator, whatever, anything, right? Just just avert your gaze, basically, from anything that doesn't have anything to do with lobbying. And they collected these. They collected, they copied thousands of these telegrams. And then what Black would be able to do is he called the witness and he said, on June 8th, you sent a telegram saying this. Can you imagine, you know, someone has your email communication and they can blindside you? This exact, people don't believe this is exactly what happened. And so they started to do this, and Western Union then started a policy of informing people when their telegrams were were being examined. And so one guy's telegrams was examined. He was named Newton Baker. He was Wilson's Secretary of War, leading Democrat, not so much of a New Dealer, but kind of a moderate. And he said, when I found out about that, I, I wouldn't necessarily lead a lynching party against Senator Black, but if someone wanted to, you know, tie a rope around his neck, I wouldn't stop him. 
And this is, but then one guy named Silas Strawn, who was head of the chamber, National Chamber of Commerce. He was had been head of the Republican Finance Committee. He was a head of the Golf Association. This guy was like elite law firm in Chicago. Said, my God, there's, you know, he got this information. So he sued to stop this and he won in a lower court and it went back and forth. But basically what the court said, it never went to the Supreme Court. The court said, FCC, bad, don't do this anymore. Stop doing it. We will sanction you if you try to do it again. But we can't do anything. It's been done already. You know. Congressional committees had wide latitude under the law. And so eventually they had to stop this. But by that time, Black had already gathered up all of his evidence. And he had all he had the cash. He he had it. He didn't have to give it up. So this is a surveillance state on a massive scale. Millions of private telegrams being examined by a congressional committee. Of course, it's low tech, but still, this is a big deal. So one thing I want to drill down on. So one of the very first things you said: the list of people who were engaged in these communications started with members of Congress. That was the early list, and then they started. But, but for just for just for members yeah. of Congress, they were not made aware of this at any point. I think later, what Western Union started to do is they started informing people, and I don't know if they informed everybody, but they informed a lot of people. Hey, your telegrams are being looked at. So Strawn was one of them. So it was all done secretly for months. It was all done secretly, and then eventually, Western Union, which did not like this policy which fought the policy, I think that was their way of undermining it. And they were probably, the anti-New Deal sentiment was growing to such an extent, you know, they may have been influenced by that. But it's an interesting question as to why they started to do this. It was secret. And people are like, you know, their headline news, millions of telegram. It's like suddenly out of the blue, you know, the, the people started to reveal the information. Initially, it was members of Congress, and they started to look at groups like the Liberty League and Various anti-New Deal groups, including the National Women's Party, which is a feminist party, they, they started to just expand it to all to to journalists, you know, all over the country. And they started to initially it was telegrams in and out of Washington, but then they they did they did selected subpoenas. For example, there was a a newspaper, um, an anti-New newspaper, I think it was in Kansas, and they just said any telegrams coming in and out of that newspaper, which would include reporters and everyone else. We subpoena a dragnet. Subpoena. They started to call them subpoenas. not really subpoenas though. Because it's not a court process. Not, no, no, it is executive subpoena. Exact. That's exactly the way to put it. It's not a court. They just sort of announce it. They ex- executive orders or not even executive orders. Black is empowered to do this. And he'll say, I want this and I want this and I want this. So what, that stunning, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were some of the other uh, attacks on the the rights of Americans? Okay, well, there was a big backlash against the Black Committee, which was called the Black Inquisition. People were actually pointing out, "Hey, there's rumors this guy was in the Ku Klux Klan," and there was this. I've, I've reproduced it in our book, my book. You know, the picture of Klan, a uh, cartoon of Black in a Klan outfit, titled "Black Inquisition." And it was still rumored, though, but it became confirmed after he got on the Supreme Court. Well, after the Black Committee kind of fell apart, it, it kind of 
it had some success, but it was ultimately people turned against it. There was a, a year went by and there was another committee set up by a guy who was a member of the black committee named Sherman Mitten, who was a senator from Indiana. Of course, I, as a Louisville resident, I am well aware of the Sherman Minton Bridge. Yeah, if you Google his name, and I, I was trying to find audio, video clips of him, and I found one real short, one very short, but that was all that came up. Just kept going, searching, you know, Sherman Minton. And he, in any case, was, was, was chair of this committee. And Minton was arguably even more of an attack dog than Black, who now is on the Supreme Court. So he's, he's out of the picture. That's what got him on the Supreme Court, by the way. The Black committee, it's often not talked about. Black was a very loyal Roosevelt attack dog. That's how he got on the court, basically. I mean, he wasn't some distinguished guy. He was like a senator, you know, kind of a, you know, he wasn't some famous lawyer or anything like that. He was a partisan. Well, okay, Mitten is, is the same way. He's a younger guy. He's in his 40s, and he's the Democratic leadership is like 20 years older than him, average age, more than that. And he is rising up. He's assistant, assistant to Democratic whip. But then he's chair of this committee, succeeds Black to investigate lobbying. And Mitten does the same thing. But, you know, he, he, he can't do the telegrams because that's been precluded now. But he does all sorts of, he call, they call, they're called dragnet subpoenas. We all said, you know, he calls you in or whoever and says, I want all your papers for this like eight month period, everything, bring them to me. It's a, a you know, kind of a broad kind of subpoena. And he was doing that and he got some mileage out of it, but there was a lot of pushback, including the guy who was president of the University of Wisconsin, former president, others, you know, who were fighting back and he was not popular. So he decided to ratchet it up. He, as Black had done, he got the tax, he, he, he got the IRS to give him all tax information, income tax returns, right, from, from all these people. So he did that, but there, there was a real big backlash. So Minton got very frustrated by his committee was kind of falling apart. And then he came up with a proposal. He, he, the proposal was, Donald Trump's actually supported something similar to this. He said, it will henceforth be a, it, it will become against the law, felony, if a newspaper publishes anything known to be untrue. Felony, punishable by a prison sentence. Now, where do you get that idea? Well, Roosevelt is a sly character who's very good about covering his tracks. But Min, everyone said, was just not the kind of guy to go off half-cocked. He, he was a loyal administration man, 100% support court packing, all that. He'd, you know, he'd do whatever Roosevelt wanted. And there's, there were a lot of rumors, including from people that were very pro-New Deal, you know, who say, look, insiders tell us that this came from higher up. And there were rumors, and I think there, the evidence is, 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 I can't say 100%. But I think there's good reason to believe he got it. He, Roosevelt said, hey, this would be a great bill. Because Roosevelt's always attacking the press for like fake news. You know, very similar. In fact, they, I don't even know if they use the term fake news, but they use terms that were very similar to that. And that's what his view was. He was the first big crusader against that. Misinformation, fake news. And uh, so they proposed this bill. Probably Roosevelt put him up to it. But what happened was immediate opposition, including from most Democrats, which is something you probably wouldn't see now. 
say, this is outrageous. You said, we can't do this. This is the First Amendment. Big newspapers that were pro-New Deal, loyal New Deal newspapers, broke, said this is, made fun of it, belittled it, saying this is, a, this is awful. Roosevelt was asked about it as a lot of this backlash was occurring in a news conference and said, what do you think of this bill? And Roosevelt said, basically, well, if we were to enforce this, the, you know, the Bureau of Prisons couldn't even keep all the prisoners. There'd be so many of them. And, you know, he sort of laughs it off. And then he says in the news conference, as, he's, he's, as he moves to another question, he says, well, you boys brought it on yourselves, you know, talking about the reporters. No, so he didn't exactly say, I endorse this. But if you read those words, it's like, he was too smart at that point to stick his neck out for this bill. Roosevelt would leave you hanging of something. It was, it was universal. I'm talking about the leading, and that, that speaks highly of the strength at that time of pro-free pro speech opinion. And Roosevelt started to get pushback in, in a lot of things. In the late 30s, there was a rising consensus on the left and the right for free speech. Uh, I discussed the movie, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And if you want to see that consensus reflected, go see one of the most popular movies of 1939. It is one of the most eloquent, aggressive defenses of free speech made by director Frank Capra, who was a Republican and had voted Republican in every single election, including 1936, working with a scriptwriter who was a Marxist and another scriptwriter who was a conservative Catholic. All these people could get together and agree on producing a movie that was a ringing endorsement of the little guy against the, the powers that be and free speech. Because part of the theme there is there's a city machine that is trying to smash free, free speech. And Mr. Smith is standing up against this, you know, this attempt to suppress dissent. And we haven't even discussed the wholesale uh, internment of many, many thousands of Japanese U.S. citizens taken away under zero suspicion. Exactly. And that, there's just some new things that can be said about that. I originally was not going to include a chapter on internment because I thought everybody knows about this. Historians have written about it, but there's a lot of new stuff in the book that, that I mean, I think that maybe people aren't aware of. For example, Japanese internment. And by the way, I say concentration camps in the title of this book to refer to Japanese internment. And some people said initially to me, there was some pushback, David, that's, you know, that's not saying it's not the Nazi camps. I said, no, these are not death camps. These are not the same. However, the term concentration camp applies it was used by none other than Roosevelt. 1944 at a news conference, he used that term to describe it. Roosevelt, this is another thing about it. A lot of people see Roosevelt just had to kind of do this. You know, he's a great guy, civil libertarian, but there was such pressure and hysteria. No, I don't buy that. First of all, the evacuation of the Japanese, the first moves against the Japanese were not until February. That's, you know, three months after Pearl Harbor. Was there some groundswell of we got to intern the Japanese? Very late in the process, very late in the process, there was 
you know, some call for that, but really there wasn't during most of this period. And the best source for this, for those who doubt me, is read what Roosevelt's own attorney general said. The man who fought the policy, he ended up going along with it, and his name was Francis Biddle. And Biddle was very much against this policy. And he says, look, we didn't ha- he didn't have to do it. There wasn't a groundswell of support. Polls didn't show that people really cared about this. And frankly, if, if to the extent there was any anti-Japanese feeling, Roosevelt had his, had his, he had his unity behind him, the wartime unity, which is even greater than the New Deal unity. Could have easily said, these are Americans too. We're fighting for their rights. The, you know, four freedoms apply to them as well as us. He could have undercut that easily. But Roosevelt had been talking about interning or putting them in concentration camps, Japanese Americans since the mid 30s. He said in the mid 30s, he said, look, if we ever get a, basically a war situation in Hawaii, we got to we got to um, lock lock up the Japanese Americans there, including citizens. So there was that's so- what's internment is different than Japanese internment is fundamentally different from what happened to Germans and Italians because they're they're locking up everybody, all every family member. That's not they, nothing like that happened with the Germans. At the end of all of this, at the end of FDR being president, was there ever really a reckoning with those events of, of the attacks on basic rights? Yeah, very quickly in the forties, you're starting to get people in forty five. 46, I believe Earl Warren, who was governor of California, actually said, we welcome back the Japanese Americans and uh, go- Governor Ralph Carr. I'm sorry, let me, let me okay. if, if you don't mind, what I'm referring to is just the, the broad range of activities that he engaged in as president. No, there's never been a reckoning for Franklin D. Roosevelt. And even today, if you look at textbooks on internment, they tend to put the blame on They'll say, oh, well, Roosevelt shouldn't have done it, whatever. But they put the blame on General DeWitt, who was the mil- handed over to the military. Having said that, DeWitt was against internment till about a month before. Roosevelt, as far as we know, had always been friendly to the idea. So DeWitt said, these are Americans. And he eventually, he was a weak character. He was a bureauc- called a bureaucrat in uniform. DeWitt, you know, went along with it, right? Because he was a little bit of racist too and so forth. But he wasn't some driving force for it, you know, which is sort of, and he got no pushback. Nobody in the administration said, hey, wait a minute, General DeWitt. Certainly not Roosevelt. David Beto is author of The New Deal's War on the Bill of Rights, The Untold Story of FDR's Concentration Camps, Censorship, and Mass Surveillance. We spoke earlier this month in Memphis. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 